Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. This week I'm joined by Olivier Fabot from Pride House Tokyo. Pride House has been around for about a decade and it is a installation that follows major sporting events and is a place for LGBTQ people to congregate. Olivier is involved in the Pride House Tokyo and he joins us to talk about kind of some of the details, some of the things that people can look forward to in and around Pride House Tokyo, how to find it, what its purpose is, and also uh, some insight into LGBTQ culture in Japan. Obviously, the Japanese culture is very different from American and Western European culture. And so he gives us an insight into what that looks like and the impact that having a Pride House and LGBTQ athletes in and around the Olympics in Tokyo will have. Anyhow, without further ado, here's my interview with Olivier Fabo from Pride House Tokyo. Okay, well, I'm here with Olivier Fabua. Did I say that right? Did I get close? Yeah, yeah, it's that, that's good enough. <laughs> I was butchering his last name and Americanizing it um, before. So, uh, Olivier Fabua. And uh, Olivier is part of Pride House in Tokyo. He's been living there for a long time. And as you know, the Olympics are coming later this summer to Tokyo. Olivier, I know this is a super general question, but... Some of our listeners will know what Pride House is, some won't. Can you just give me a little bit of kind of background on Pride House, like um, historically, and then a background on uh, Pride House Tokyo? Sure. Um, so historically, Pride House actually began in 2010 in, at the Vancouver Winter Olympics. Uh, it was meant to highlight uh, LGBT, or at the time, the lack of LGBT, um, visibility in sports and especially the Olympics and uh, that got the ball rolling it's been uh, basically organized around nearly every Olympics except for the the Russian Sochi Olympics um, since then and in has also been organized with other sporting events like uh, World Cup soccer and for us Pride House uh, we've actually organized it last year for the Rugby World Cup in Tokyo. And so what can people expect from Pride House Tokyo at the Summer Games this year? And I know you can't say everything, but well, like just generally, <laughs> what can people expect? So, so we, we basically are going to continue a bit what we did for the Rugby World House, uh, Pride House, sorry. And it will be a lot of um, basically raising awareness about LGBT issues, uh, trying to bring people uh, to the house, show them what is available as far as um, you know, openly LGBT athletes. Uh, we will, at least for this Olympic one, because obviously rugby, there aren't as many openly, uh, they're mostly men, so uh, gay uh, rugby players, but with the Olympics, we hope to be uh, there to support the LGBT uh, athletes, uh, send them um, fan emails, Twitter, whatever. Um, we'll have people signing stuff there. And also, um, basically, a lot of information about how sports is still the last frontier, uh, in with, especially with regards to homophobia. 
and um, basically trying to raise, raise awareness in general. But especially in Japan, where things are yet not at the same stages as in, in the States or, or in Europe, uh, even just raise awareness in the general public about LGBT issues, not just in sports. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where I wanted to head with this, because you talked about sports being the final frontier. But I know that LGBTQ equality and visibility is different in Japan than most of Western Europe and the United States. Can mm. you give me some idea of where that is? Well, in as far as sports in, is concerned, um, we only know of one current athlete, sports athlete, that is out um, in Japan. That's the uh, soccer she, player? Soccer player, yeah. She's, uh, and she just... In a way, it's, it was a bit of a fluke. She was playing for a German uh, team in Germany, and it felt natural for her to come out there. But coming back to Japan, she realized she was the only one out. <laughs> um, and it's just something not done here. Uh, sports can be, uh, especially, uh, well, like, like anywhere, anywhere else, sports can be very, um, a very macho uh, industry. And even if... You know the coaches tend to to play it down, and they talk, there's a lot of lot of um, so sort of like jokes going around, especially homophobic jokes going around um, in, in Japan as as well, and that's that's always been a problem. So um, it's not, yeah, it's it's very very still closeted here as far as uh, the LGBT uh, you know, so like world is concerned. Are there LGBT sports leagues in Tokyo? Like in, in, in Los Angeles, we have a basketball and softball and soccer. Do LGBTQ people get together and play sports in leagues and teams? So I'm not aware of any apart from the rugby. Uh, there is a gay rugby team uh, that's been set up by, I think, an American guy who, um, who set it up here. And it's got they, they've got about two teams. But the interesting thing about those teams is they actually don't they're not out either. They don't tell the teams they play that they're gay, um, but they just happen to be gay and everybody knows they're gay. So um, it, it's it's a bit it's a bit of a bizarre situation here. Outside of sports, how are gay people accepted in just mainstream Japanese culture? So Japanese culture has a long tradition, I mean, the, the ancient tradition of, you know, it, it being usually okay, as long as you uh, continue the family line, um, you know, it, it's, it's more, it was always considered for a long time, it was considered more of a, um, a, a sexual quirk than anything else. Uh, things obviously are changing now, um, but it, people still prefer to keep things in the closet, even if there is, you know, there there is no such thing as you know a moral religious uh, bias against homosexuality here. But there is definitely a social pressure to 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 conform with the rest of society, and that's made it very difficult for uh, the average um, LGBT to come out. Um, so it's it's opening. It's things are changing, changing for the better here, but it's still very slow progress. I think part of it is because um, there has been no law against homosexuality, so there's nothing to fight against. The only people you're really fighting against is is your parents or your or society, which in a in an Asian context can context can be quite quite daunting. 
So it's it's still very slow progress here. But at the same time, there is no recognition legally uh, at the federal level of same-sex relationships. Is that right? That's correct. It's uh, actually the, the ruling government is the only party that is not interested in even considering same-sex marriage. The rest have it in, you know, are pushing for it. Uh, but the current ruling government is very conservative. It's a, they consider themselves family oriented um, more than anything else. Um, so they are not, they are not envisaging it at all. And, the, and I know as well that there are issues with um, access for LGBTQ people to, um, I know adoption is kind of an interesting um, uh, thing there. It looks it looked at differently from here. And I know that Surrogacy, access to surrogacy for same-sex couples is non-existent. So I understand what you're saying. There's not this like this groundswell of homophobia yet. The the lack of uh, legal recognitions and legal access, I imagine, has to be on the radar of the community or something to fight for. No, absolutely. I mean, well, one one of the big issues is um, say my partner. Uh, falls ill, he goes to hospital. I I have no say in his his uh, his treatment. And if he does pass away, his parents, if they so de uh, desire, can legally uh, exclude me from any anything that that happens after that. Um, I also have had experience of trying to get apartments here uh, when I was them out. Uh, um, or getting, you know, getting rental apartments and lo uh, landlords would say, well, we don't accept two men or two, you know, uh, or gay men. And that that's happened quite often. And there's no um, law that prevents uh, discrimination of that kind. Um, I also personally know people who have uh, been let go um, because their company found out they were gay. So it's not, you know, it, it's still it's still a big problem. Obviously, every culture has its battles, and in the United States, we have so many of these protections, and yet we continue to find things to battle for and fight for. And I, I listened to you talking about people being fired and um, rejected for housing and and lack of recognition, and it's just it's 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 amazing that a, a country like Japan that is a first world country is still many, 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 many years behind even the United States on these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have mentioned that, and that's one of the pressing points of the, 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 the activists uh, to a lot of, to the government is basically we're the only OECD uh, nation, well, not, yeah, OECD, uh, at least G7 nation that hasn't recognized uh, same-sex marriage and has no provisions for LGBT uh, protection. Um, it, it's yeah, it, it's still a long way to go. Do you is part of working with Pride House in Tokyo a hope that you can utilize sports and utilize the Olympics to bring more awareness and acceptance of the community? Absolutely. I mean, what since 2014, the Olympics has actually since it put in the, um, so like in that charter, uh, you know, that there that can that cannot be any discrimination against, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, same-sex um, 
partners or, or in as far as uh, sexual orientation is concerned, that has been at the forefront of uh, the reason why Pride House uh, has got so many so much support within the community, um, basically because it's a way to use um, the Olympics to push the government, at least if not same-sex marriage, at least anti-discrimination laws. Um, that has already helped us with the Tokyo government. So on a municipal level, the Tokyo government did pass an ordinance that, uh, um, you know, the officials cannot discriminate, discriminate against, um, uh, you know, according to say uh, gender or uh, sexual orientation. So that's, that's helped on a city level, but we're hoping to push that forward to a national level as well. What are some of the things that you and the organizing committee, and, and I know that there are, there are a couple dozen organizations involved in building Pride House, what are you all doing to make sure that you have a real presence during the Olympics, not just within Tokyo, but that the whole world is able to see what Pride House is doing and is aware of the LGBTQ people in and around the Tokyo Olympics? No, that's a very good question. I think, well, one thing we're doing is uh, the Japanese media has woken up to the LGBT uh, issue here in Japan. And with the Olympics, it's you know, anything Olympics does help our us. And we do get we are getting a lot of coverage from the Japanese in the Japanese media about it. We're hoping to get a bit more uh, with, uh, you know, with other foreign media as well once the Olympics get started. But we are, we're also using um, our network to um, to link up with uh, LGBT uh, organizations outside Tokyo as well. Um, it is still Tokyo, as in a lot of other countries, you know, the capital is is one thing and then the rest of the country usually lags behind a lot. And that's the same thing here. So we're trying to help um, show the way uh, to the uh, to the other prefectures that you know this is possible, um, and basically support their endeavors. Um, since a year or two years ago, there's all the smaller cities in Japan have had uh, their pride parade in one way or another. So we're supporting them as well, um, helping them you know set up pride parades as well. Uh, so that that's also one way where we're we're trying to bring the message across uh, nationwide. Okay, everybody, well, hang tight. We got a couple commercial messages here, and we'll be right back with Olivier Fabro. Okay, we're back with Olivier with Pride House Tokyo, and I'm going to stop trying to say his last name because uh, Americans just can't say it right. Um, Olivier, how long have you been in Tokyo, and and what brought you there? So I actually came to Tokyo when I was eight years old. Uh, it's a very long story, but um, to cut that short, my grandmother's half Japanese. And when my parents divorced, uh, it's my grandmother brought my mother over to Japan uh, and she came here as a French teacher. Um, so that happened uh, several, a couple decades ago. Uh, and I've been here since. I went to the UK for university, but then came back uh, to find work in Japan after that. And, and you covered the Olympics when they were last in Japan, Nagano, in 1998. What were some yeah. of your best memories from that time? Oh, my best memories from them. Um, so I was working for 
uh, Reuters at the time, Reuters Video News at the time. So a lot of my work tended to be in this one, how would you call it, a me the media room where we'd get the official highlights, edit them and put them out. But we did get out um, into Nagano and it was just incredible the amount of energy there from so many visitors from around the world and just coming together uh, to watch something, just to, just to have fun. Um, obviously, one, one other thing I did, I don't know if this is okay for this podcast, but we, I did remember there are a lot of condoms going around uh, because it was one of those, I think it was one of the first Olympics that they realized that they needed to do something about um, the amount of sex people were having, basically. <laughs> So that that was also very noticeable. So we'll 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 see. You know that that doesn't sound like the best memories, but it was definitely something that stuck in me. <laughs> Every year we hear some increased number, a hundred thousand condoms uh, available to athletes. And I remember talking to Adam Rippon, who was in Pyongyang, uh, whatever, whatever it was, two years ago. And he said, I couldn't find a condom anywhere. Like finally, he finally he did find them, but he's like, all this talk about all these condoms, and he couldn't find one. Maybe they were in the media center. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all the sex the media is having, right. Possibly, um, yes. <laughs> will you be covering these Olympics for the media? I mean, oh, you, you and I have talked about maybe you writing some stuff for Outsports, but are you still in the media and will you be covering the, these Olympics from that perspective? So I, I'm freelancing um, most of the time now, but when it comes to the Olympics, I think I will mostly be with the Pride House. Um, it's just because, so I, I can't reveal too, much, too many details. We will have a Pride House opening pretty soon, uh, several months before the actual opening, and uh, it will go on through the Olympics and also the Paralympics, um, and we will definitely need uh, volunteers and people to staff it. Uh, unlike the one in uh, for Pride House the, the 2019, we're, we're actually going to be open from 10 to quite late at night. So we'll need a lot of people, and I'm one of. I think I'll be there five time, five days, uh, at least five shifts a week. Um, there. So, yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to have time to, to cover the Olympics as a journalist, that is. Have you been following the, uh, the lead up to the Olympics? And from journalist perspective, what might be a couple of things, stories, athletes, topics that would be high on your radar screen if you were covering the Olympics this time around? Hmm. Good question. Um, I, based in Japan, I've been quite um, inundated more with Japanese uh, Olympic stories than anything else. I mean, a lot of a lot of them. There's still a lot of people qualifying, uh, so it, it's hard to say. But there's been at least in Japan a very big move for the Paralympics um, and raising awareness of Paralympic uh, Paralympians as well. Uh, so that's been high on our on our um, on our radar here. Um, as far as the other Olympics, I think the new sports are quite in, are quite interesting. Um, you know, the, the, the surfing though surfing is going to be quite far ahead, far apart, uh, far outside Tokyo. So I don't know how how successful that will be. Apart from that, it's just the, the heat. Just people are worried about the heat. Um, because 
it is going to happen in that very hot, you know, it's usually 30, 36, sometimes 40 degrees with a lot of humidity um, in the summer. And we'll just we'll just have to see how that that pans out. And for those of you who are on the Fahrenheit scale, uh, 30, <laughs> which we do have, we're still stuck in the uh, Middle Ages of the United States. Uh, 30 is mid-80s, 40 is 100 plus. So it's, uh, there's always considerations uh, when, when they're scheduling the Olympic Games, trying to figure out how to make it not too oppressive. But it sounds like they have picked the middle of summer in a very hot climate <laughs> in, uh, in, in Tokyo. Absolutely. And that, that's, that's one of the reasons why the marathon has been moved to Hokkaido, which is like the northernmost um, town, uh, sort of island of Japan. So it's not that it's no longer even just a Tokyo Olympics. It's like a Japan Olympics now. And they, they do that all the time with 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 different uh, with different cities. It's it's yeah. so often, you know, because you'll have it in, you'll have an winter Olympics in a city and then you'll have you have to have the skiing or what have you in the mountains, sometimes far, far yeah. away. So that, that's not a big surprise. Um, one of the things that we talk about at Outsports and have been for, gosh, eight months now is the fact that there there will in all likelihood be over a hundred out athletes in competing in Tokyo. Is is that something that's on the radar screen of mainstream Tokyo media and 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 is it even being talked about in um you know within the LGBT community? So the mainstream media in Japan no. Uh they're still not yet at that level of <laughs> of interest as far as LGBT athletes are concerned. I'm sure they will at one point, but uh, I think they're more busy with the, the other stories. Yeah. Um, the LGBT community, yes. Uh, there's a lot of interest with the, who's going to be coming to the Olympics as far as LGBTQ athletes are concerned. Um, that That is definitely up there. And also one of the reasons we hope to uh, open, well, we're opening the Pride House uh, as a way to support them. If people want to find more information about the Pride House, how to support it, or where just to find it in Tokyo, where should they go? So we have a website. It's pridehouse.jp. Um, we've just updated the English. So it's a Japanese and English. You, there's, there should be a button where you can click to change it into English. And we've updated that. There's not much yet there because we, we haven't yet made a, our final announcements. Uh, but once uh, we have all the details, it will go up there. Okay, Olivia, well, I end every podcast with the same two questions. And so I'm gonna ask these of you. First of all, first question, name an Olympian who has inspired you. Uh, inspired is, well, there, there are many of them actually, but I think Matthew Mitchum was one that um, inspired me because when he won the Beijing um, Olympic diving, uh, meet. I think he got go well. He got gold. Uh, I was watching it in in Japan, and on Japanese TV, they they cut his um, they they cut it really short. That and once he won, they cut it to something else. And then I noticed on I went straight onto YouTube, and I noticed uh, on Australian television they actually carried on the uh, the recording, and you could see him kiss his partner in public uh, at the Olympics. And that for me was was inspiring. And I had the honor to meet him. Uh, uh, I think the next year I was in Australia for Mardi Gras and I, I got to help out our colleagues 
and I actually got to interview him there. Um, so for me, he's been the, the Olympian. Um, I still have uh, you know a lot of um, you know good vibes for, and you know he's he's not competing obviously this time, but uh, diving's always been our favorite sport since then. Uh, I tell people he's the he's the gay Jesse Owens, a guy who. Uh, went to a place where at the time homosexuality was very not okay and took on took on the Chinese in their sport and stopped a sweep of gold medals. That was one of the most yeah, shocking absolutely. performances was, I've ever seen. Yeah, that was incredible, yeah. It brings you know, of course, now we've got Tom Daly as well. <laughs> Um, the other question I always ask people, so the, the name of the podcast is Five Rings to Rule Them All. You may know that that is kind of a take on a line from Lord of the Rings. So I'm curious, um, give me a, a, a character or a moment from the storyline of Lord of the Rings that, that stands out to you as one of your favorite or more inspiring. Ooh. Oh, my God. Now you've caught me off guard. Um, there's so many. Uh, I remember reading it when I was a teenager and then going on and anyway, it was, and then I was one of, I was a Dungeon and Dragon geek. So I definitely, Same. yeah, <laughs> I'm in there. Um, but a moment, a moment. I just remember that the, the, in the movie, which, you know, some people like, some people don't, uh, but the mo movie when um, it was, I think it was Sam and uh frodo i think there was a little moment at the end when sam actually and i can't i'm really bad at remembering these things but sam ends up saving frodo um well though not the ring and that that was just a tender moment which i remember and thinking oh is there something in there but that's just me being gay <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he um, yeah. Frodo was about to sink into an eternity of hell, and Sam uh, saved him in that volcano. I, I I was just watching that scene on the plane back from the Super Bowl uh, about a week ago. So the, those movies hold a very special place in my heart, and it's amazing how many people I have on the podcast who are like, "Oh my gosh, I love Lord of the Rings." <laughs> It is iconic. It is definitely out there. Uh, all right. Well, Olivier, thank you so much for joining us. And, and best of luck with everything Pride House. And thank you for what you're doing. It's so important to have a place in and around the Olympics where LGBTQ athletes and fans uh, can feel at home and just feel themselves. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be on this podcast. If you end up in Tokyo in and around the Olympics, please do stop by Pride House and post pictures on social media. Tag out sports and we'll share them. We are going to be working with Pride House over the next six months to elevate what they're doing and to elevate what LGBTQ athletes and coaches and trainers in and around the Olympics are doing. So definitely, if you're in Tokyo, stop by Pride House. If you're not in Tokyo, head over to their website and find them on social media and give them some support. We'll be back next week talking to a former Olympian. I'm going to hold off his name so it can be a big surprise, but I'm really looking forward to this interview. I hope you have a great week, and we'll talk to you then. Bye.